everybody okay? We're good. Okay. <clears throat> it's good to see you guys this morning. Is everybody doing well? Yeah? Good. I wanted to take a moment and thank you. Uh, you guys were introduced to my good friend, Pastor Willio, about three weeks ago. Um, and then you guys were very generous in helping to provide Bibles for his church at intermissions. I was actually able to send the money to him. Uh, I think that Monday or Tuesday, he bought those Bibles that week, and they actually got the Bibles this week. He was able to give some folks in his congregation a Bible who had never had Bibles before. And they were able to read them at home, and he had all these people coming to him with questions about the Bible. Uh, so this week will be the first week that his church has had Bibles of their own, so that as he preaches, that they can look at the text. So, so I'm very pleased uh, with your generosity. I think God is pleased with your generosity, and so thank you for doing what God would have you do. And seeing communities transformed, uh, even in, in different countries, through your obedience. And we hope that this, you know, this seed that we've planted in, in giving Bibles will uh, flourish into just a forest uh, of, of godliness there. So, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, we're going to be working our way through there a little bit. And uh, thus far in 1 Corinthians, we've, we've had two teachings so far in 1 Corinthians. And thus far, Paul has expressed his thankfulness for the Corinthian church. He's established his calling from God, and he's exhorted the church not to divide over personalities of leadership in the church. So Larry last week helped us to see uh, what the problem was there at the church, and they had a division over leadership so much that people were saying, you know, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, or, you know, even I'm of Christ. And so what they were doing is their, their pride was leading them to some sort of vicarious exaltation, um, they, have, they were having like a borrowed greatness from the people that they, you know, liked or identified themselves with. So last, week passage helped us, last week's passage helped us to identify the problem at Corinth and then even some problems we see here. And it was more of like a put-off passage, you know, kind of like this is what you shouldn't do. You should put these things off. This week's passage is more of like a put-on or what you should do passage. So what we will see uh, this week is that we need to put on boasting in the Lord. All right, so that's kind of where we're going. That's kind of the, the pinnacle of where we're going, is that, that let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, that's what you should leave with today. Um, the passage that I'm teaching is different than the passage that uh, Jeff taught, the introduction, and then the passage that Larry taught, kind of the identifying of, of problems section. My passage this morning that we're going to be in, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5, is much longer and it, uh, it actually is the beginning of Paul's argument. So he's building an argument. So what he's doing is, is he's building something. So each piece that, uh, that goes rests on the piece that came before. So it's kind of a tightly knit argument that's going on there. Uh, so it will be my job to help us see how each of those little pieces build up to the main point of let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's where we're going. So our, our teaching this morning is kind of going to be like a climbing a mountain. Okay, so if you've ever climbed a mountain, you know that the first little bit is hard. You know, you kind of got to climb up and you struggle and you get up to the top. When you get to the top, it's all worth it. You get this splendorous, glorious view of, of all things below. And then you kind of go back down on the mountain pretty quick. So that's, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So if you pray with me that God would bless our time together and um, 
we'll get started. Father, we do ask that what we come away with this morning is a deep knowing and understanding of you. Father, that our waywardness uh, would be no hindrance to you, Father, that you would offer us the grace that we need, we would repent well, and that we would move forward hearing your word of restoration to us, and God, that we would grow in knowing you, that what we would be left with this morning is a deep knowing of you that would lead to a, a jubilant boasting in you and you alone. So God, may our deepest affections and our deepest longings and our deepest desires be found in you. And God, I pray that those would overflow into uh, verbal expressions and lively expressions of dependence and trust in you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So down in the valley at Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we read this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to, the, to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see in this first little section, this first uh, verse, in verse 18, that there's kind of a dividing line that's been drawn. So we see there's two types of people. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that the dividing line is over this, uh, this statement here, the... Uh, the word of the cross. So to some, this word of the cross is a, has a saving effect on them. And to others, they view it as folly. And this is, this is true about everyone in the world. There's only two responses to the gospel. Either you believe that it's the power of God, the very wisdom of God, or you believe that it's foolishness, and as we'll see, a stumbling block. So Paul lays that out very, quick, very quickly. There's only two responses to the gospel, to the word of the cross, as he calls it. He then goes on to quote Isaiah 29, 14. And the, the point that he's making here is that it's long been God's plan to undo the wisdom of the world, to kind of untangle all the systems and programs and religions, all the attempts to get back to God on one's own. That God is unraveling those through the gospel, through this word of the cross. And that we see from Isaiah that he's long planned to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. He will thwart or confuse. So where Paul is leading us is in a deep understanding and confidence that we have no room to boast so he goes on to ask, 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul is basically saying that the wisdom of the world, with all of its tactics, could not come up with a, a way to get back to God. So on its own, on your own, you cannot get back to God. You can't come up with a solution to the problem that you have. And the problem that you have, the problem that the world has, is an estrangement or a divorce from God. Not just a, a separation from God as in space, because, you know, God's everywhere, right? But more of a divorce, a relational separation, where there's a chasm between God and man relationally because of man's sin. That's the problem. And many have tried to develop systems that get back to God through some sort of work, through some sort of devotion, through some sort of emotion even. But Paul says that that's not possible. It cannot be done. But God takes great pleasure in saving those who believe through the folly of what we preach. The notion that God saves people apart from their uh, righteous acts is very very particular to Christianity. Uh, As we said before, if you look anywhere else, you're going to see people kind of coming up with systems, coming up with ways to get back to God. And often when when you share the gospel with people, they'll say things like this. Well, I can't really believe that because that's just too easy. You know, that that God would deal with your sin and that you would just trust him? That's too easy. Or the fact that God would come as a man and die on a cross, that's just confusing. Or that's impossible. That they see it as foolishness or they see it as a stumbling block, something that they can't get over in order to get to Christ. We see in this passage that it pleases God. And it pleases God because it points to his power in saving sinners. The point that Paul is going to make is just that. Only God has the power to save sinners. Therefore, you have nothing to boast in. Only God has power to save sinners. And it pleases him to do this. He takes delight in it. Why would this please God? Why would God take delight in this? Because it shows his greatness, his ability, his compassion, his justice, his righteousness. All these things are displayed in him taking care of it. Even so much that he would become a man. That he would take care of it. You see, all the other gods of the world, they stand far off and say, you take care of it. You get busy doing. But our creator, the one true God, comes in the flesh and takes care of it. Not leaving you with the option of doing it yourself. Because were you to do it yourself, you would have plenty to boast in. You would get to heaven. You would stand before God. You'd give God a high five and say, look at what we did. There will be no high fives between you and God when you get to heaven. 
you will be on your face before God saying, God, look at what you did. This is not a group effort. God is solo on saving sinners. Verse 22, the Apostle Paul, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And so in this passage, Paul is telling us kind of how it is to share the gospel in his context. That there's, there's two responses, really. When people are somewhat interested, they might say something like, Well, uh, why don't you show me a sign? Why don't you do something miraculous? Those are the spiritual kind of in his, in his context. The other would be uh, the intellectual will say, well, why don't you give me some crafty argument? Give me some intellectual argument about why this is true. We see this even in our own time. Um, often when you share the good news with people, uh, they will say things like, well, you know, sh- show me how this is true. Or give me a good argument for this. You know, if you do this, then I'll come to God. But what that does is it puts the person who's receiving the command to humble themselves and to come under God's submission is standing over top of God and saying, no, God, if you show me something, if you do something, if you bend to my will, then I'll follow you. And often it sounds like this in our, in our culture. I will devote myself to God if he heals my child. I will follow this Jesus if he can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will turn from my sin and read the Bible if my marriage gets gets sorted out to my satisfaction. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracles on demand that removes all doubt. And many of us had that posture before we came to know Christ. Many of us said, you know, God, if you do this, I'll do this. If you take care of this thing, I'll follow you. But uh, on this side of the cross, you know there are no deals made with God. God doesn't make deals. He has a deal. I remember as a, as a non-believer, my, I had a plan. This was my plan. I was going to study all the religions of the world and then make my decision about which religion was the right one right? And this seems like a viable feat, except I had never read a book before. Um, I was 20-something years old, had never read a book. I could read, but I'd never read a book. Um, I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, so I'd never done any type of real study of any sort, Um, and I was pretty much stoned all the time. So there wasn't any real prospect that that was actually going to happen. So here I was, like, making deals with God, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to, But what I was doing was standing over top of God and saying, look, I'm going to get this thing figured out, and then I'll get back to you on what I think is best. My loving mother on my 21st birthday gave me a Bible, and I thought that was the worst present ever. (laughs) I was like, really? So I started reading it, and God bent me and bent me and bent me and bent me to to the place that I broke over his word that either I was going to bend and break to it or I was going to have nothing to do with him. Those are your options. Either it was foolishness and a stumbling block or it was the very wisdom of God, the power of God. And God broke me on his word to the point that I said, God, you are the wisdom and you are the power. 
No systems, no games. You can have me. You can do what you want to with me. And he does, and he has. And we continue to do that. So Paul's response to these folks who say, I want it my way. He calmly responds, but we preach Christ crucified. Though his hearers want a different type of answer, he sticks with the message of God. Christ crucified. So when, you, when, when someone comes back to you with a response that, that lets you sense uh, how displeasing they are of the message, do you back off of the message? Do you change the message? Are you tempted to kind of take out the inappropriate or unpalatable parts? Are you tempted to kind of tone it down? Are you tempted to change the gospel so it's a little easier to believe? Maybe I'll leave the whole wrath thing out and focus just on God's love. People will like that better. Maybe if I leave out the part about sin, uh, people will accept the message a little, a little more quickly. Or maybe you're tempted not to share at all. Maybe you have this precious jewel in the gospel, this gift that God's given you, this message that you keep hidden and therefore no one receives the benefits of it. These are all great temptations because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing and it's a stumbling block to those who don't believe. But that's God's business. You can't change that. That's how it is. So what is the word of the cross? What is Christ crucified? So when Paul says, well, we preach Christ crucified, that's easy to say, but what is that? There's a ton of different ways to explain that. I want to lay out for you guys how I go about doing that. I was tempted often to kind of tailor the message for who I was speaking to, but what I found was that often pieces and parts were being left out. Um, so I, I kind of set out to, to, for myself, develop a way of, of talking about when we uh, talk about being saved or we talk about Christ's work on the cross, what do we mean? And, and this is kind of where I've landed. Is that you need to be saved from God, by God, to God, for God. So you need to be saved from God. You need to be rescued from God's just wrath over your sin and rebellion against God. Because, of course... As we know from the Bible, we are enemies of God until we become children of God. So the wrath of God remains on us until we become his child. And that we need to be saved by God. So Christ, who is God, who died on a Roman cross and received the wrath of God for all who would believe and trust in his work on the cross, that's the God that you need to be saved by. You need to be saved by God. And his work on the cross. You need to be saved to God. Because by his work on the cross, Christ took your sin and gave you his righteousness or his perfection. So that you could come back into relationship with him, with your creator. So you're being saved back to him. Fellowship, relationship. You remember when we talked about divorce? That it's a, a, a rejoining. It's a remarriage, if you will. And you need to be saved for God. 
being in right relationship with God means you have a new mission. You have God's mission. And you are to live for the joy of your God in his mission. That you're about his business. You're about his plan. So for me, having these things in my mind when I share the gospel and saying, look, I'm going to hit all these things, make sure that I don't leave out the things that are tempting to leave out. So for you, you know, maybe you come up with a way to do that. Maybe that you find one that, that does that for you. But do not, do not, do not change the message. Change the content of the gospel because you're afraid that it's unpalatable. Because it is. Just resolve to that. People are not going to like your message. Every time I've ever preached the gospel, this has happened. Either somebody didn't like the message or they were all about it and trusted Jesus. That's your two options. So just resolve that that's what's going to happen and that you do that winsomely and kindly preaching Christ crucified. Either they will respond, this is foolishness and a stumbling block, or they will respond, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Either this message will make you scoff or it will make you worship. You will either scoff or worship at this message. So Paul has made his case thus far. You have nothing to boast in. This is the whole point. This is where we're going. You have nothing to boast in. You could not come up with a way to save yourself through your wisdom. So God provided a way for people to be saved, and they laughed and ridiculed him. And furthermore, the fact that, you, the fact that he called you is essential to your belief. So there is no boasting. Because everyone has heard the message, yes? So why does one boast in himself and the other boast in Christ? Why does one respond with that's foolishness and the other responds with the power of God, the wisdom of God? The passage makes it very clear that it's calling. That God calls through the gospel to his people. Let's read Verses 26 through 29. He goes on, he's, he, he wants to further this message a little bit, this, this point a little bit of the fact that you have no boasting. So what he wants to do is to have the Corinthians consider their own salvation experience. And this is what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In short, Paul is saying, you're a bunch of nobodies. Corinthians, you're kind of like trailer trash. I mean, you guys were, you know, you're nothing. You weren't wise, you weren't rich, you weren't of noble birth. There's really nothing in you that anyone would esteem, much less God. So God chose what is weak, the Corinthians. God chose what is disgraced, the Corinthians. God chose what is unregarded, 
North Wakers. We are these kind of people. Not many of you were very wise on the day of your calling. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were powerful. This is Christian history. Most of the people who have ever trusted Christ have been very low on, uh, in a very low income bracket at least, if not low on the IQ scale, and almost never nobility. Now, you do have some nobility. You do have some famous people. You have some very smart people, C.S. Lewis, you know, on and on and on. But the trend is that God saves lowly people. And this is the point that, that the Apostle Paul is making. So the logic goes this way. If God would have been all about saving primarily the rich, wise, and influential people, people would be able to say, of, of course you saved me. Look at me, I'm rich and I'm wise and I'm powerful. And people continue to think this way. People often will look at their status in life and say, well, of course God saved me. Look at me. They think very highly of themselves. But as it stands, these, these types of folks, the rich, the influential, the powerful, that they are the exception, not the rule. God's power is seen as in, in his ability to save and use such lowly things. And furthermore, they have no room to boast. There is no boasting in and of yourself in the Christian life. Again, Paul makes the point, because you weren't anything anyway when you came to Christ. So then you have the Apostle Paul who really was something when he came to Christ, right? He was the Jew of Jews. He was born of the right family. He probably was a bit wealthy. He was very wise, knew the Torah. Was probably one of the smartest people, you know, one of the smartest Jews in the Roman world at that time. But what does he say in Philippians? That he counts everything as loss, that he might know Christ. So even those who are, are of some account when they come to know Christ must at some level condescend to be among us. God chooses the lowly. This is the problem in Corinth and at North Wake, is that we forget that we have no room for boasting. We think, of course God saved me. Look at me. I follow Apollos or Peter, or I'm a great dad, or I can build stuff, or I'm a really good student, or I discipline my kids really well, or I study my Bible every day. Look at me. Look how great I am. Of course God chose me. And when we lose the wonder of being saved by God in spite of what we are, we're in danger and we need a letter from the Apostle Paul. And often we find ourselves in danger because we forget. We start to think that we're something. And the way that we know that, one of the best ways that we can know that is when people come to our church, to our meeting, as non-followers, as non-believers, as those who don't yet know Christ, and they feel like we're something um, better than they are. Because often we act that way. We act better than others. Rather than being hungry beggars who have found food, who are just telling other hungry beggars where to find food. 
may it never be that people come into this place and think, all those people are way better than I am. I could never be there. I could never go there. Because it's not true. We're lowly people. We're servants of the king. We're foot washers. And so as people interact with our community, hopefully they see that. Hopefully they see, oh, this is a place where, you know, these are people like me. You know, they're lowly. They're downtrodden people. They need help from Jesus type of people. And this is what's happened in Corinth, is the people have become very proud. They boast in who they follow rather than boasting in their king. If you'll read verses 30 and 31 with me. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here we come to the very top of the mountain, the very summit, the peak. This is the, the, the pinnacle of the Apostle Paul's argument. When he says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, he's making it very clear. You brought nothing to the table of salvation but your sin. You have nothing to boast in. You have no claim on salvation in and of yourself. This was a gift of God that you might not boast. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because you're smarter than others, but because of him. And not because you're less sinful, but because of him. And not because you're especially useful, but because of him. There is no room for boasting whatsoever. He makes this point of being in Christ. The idea of being in Christ is, is rich and really can't be exhausted here. Um, but think how people are transformed by the groups that they're in. All right? So if you send your, uh, your 17-year-old son off to the Marine Corps and he does boot camp and he comes back, he looks a little different, right? He stands up a little straighter. His hair's a little tighter. Uh, he makes his bed. It's different. But he also has vision and purpose and goals and identity because he's in the core. It makes him somebody. I have an uncle uh, who's in the core for a long time, and he's been out of the core for a long time. He's been out of the core for 30 years, but he's still a Marine. And he still stands like this, and he still does the thing. I mean, he's, he's a Marine. And he'll always be a Marine because they made him a Marine. They made him somebody. When he was 18 years old, he went in and they made him into somebody. And likewise, this is what Christ does. When we are in him, we become someone in him through identity, through purpose, through mission, through meaning, through association. He transforms us from nobodies in the world to somebodies in Christ. Not somebody special, but somebody in Christ. And when you start to take that in Christ part off, you've really lost it. But someone in Christ, because of this unity that we have with God. Remember, we were saved to God. This unity, a special oneness with God. That Jesus says in John 17 should be like the oneness between Father and Son. A a special togetherness. also means that we know him. If we're in him, we know him. 
a knowing of him. And as Paul shows, it means he becomes wisdom to us. So to be in him is to know that he is our wisdom. And then that bleeds over into this this statement that he becomes our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. These are probably three of the richest theological words that you have in the Bible. Add justification to this, and you've got like, you know, 10 years worth of study just in these words. So I'm not going to do them complete justice here. But the idea of righteousness is our right standing before God, okay? So remember, the whole context is that because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who is your wisdom, and then all these three things, right? So because of him, you have these three things. So you have righteousness, meaning a right standing before God, meaning that that doesn't change, meaning that when you fail today in not serving your wife in the way that you're supposed to, you don't get a free pass, But because of what Christ did on the cross in paying for that sin, your position before God does not change. You have a right standing with God, a true righteousness given to you by God that is Christ's. Not one that you produce in and of yourself, but one you get as a gift that causes you to live differently. That makes sure your standing with God does not change. He's your sanctification. Christ died so that you would look like him, live like him, speak like him, walk like him, talk like him, live like him. That's sanctification. The process of being made like Christ over a period of time. The process of becoming like Christ, that's sanctification. He purchased that for you. As Hebrews 10 tells us, he purchased that for you by his work on the cross. Your sanctification was secured and finished when Christ died on the cross. Now you get busy living in that sanctification. It's a done deal. Because of him, you are in Christ and being sanctified. Because of him, you are in Christ and are righteous. And lastly, the idea of redemption is that you've been freed from sin, corruption, and death. So the redemption that you have is from God. The fact that you're free from sin, the fact fact that you're free from death, meaning that you'll be raised again, is a gift from God. So from beginning to end, what have you done? Where is your boasting? All that you could have in God has been given to you by God. All that you could have in Christ has been given to you by God. So what's your response? What can you do? Where's your boasting? God has done all this so that you will boast in him. So what does it mean to boast in the Lord? Look with me at Jeremiah 29. 23 through 24, and you'll see that this is the passage that the Apostle Paul is quoting, and you're going to see some striking similarities between Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, and the passage that we're working in this morning in uh, 1 Corinthians. He says in Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You want to know what pleases God? God pleases himself. God is pleased with himself. He didn't need us for pleasure. All by himself, he can look at himself and say, I'm the man. Not really, but I'm the God. He is the stuff. There's nothing in him that is less or under or low or not. He's everything. He's all in all. And when he looks at himself, he has great delight. But then when he looks at you delighting in him and boasting in him, he takes delight in that. Because that's why he created you. Is to boast in him. To proclaim his greatness. To reflect his glory. Remember, you're made in his image. This is why he made you. So what does it mean to boast in the Lord? It means, first, that you understand him. And you seek understanding in him. And that you know him. If you do not understand and know God, you will not boast in him. And if you are not boasting in him, it's because you do not understand him. If you understood him, you would boast in him. If you understood yourself and that you have no room for boasting, you would be left with no other option than to boast in Christ. For he is the Lord who practices steadfast love and is just and is righteous. What else could you do? So what are you doing to ensure that your boasting is in the Lord rather than in yourself? I'd like you to find some time this week to ask yourself a handful of these questions. Do you spend more time thinking about yourself or God? Because what you're doing in your thinking and meditating is investing in who you're going to boast about. Do you spend more time talking about yourself or God because the heart overflows to the mouth? So if you're busy talking about yourself, your heart's distraction is and obsession is yourself. Now, you might be thinking, man, I don't want to be the weird guy who just talks about Jesus all the time. Praise God for that weird guy because that's probably how it's supposed to be. The folks that you hang around with that are really godly folks where you're like, man, that guy makes me really uncomfortable. I want to be that guy. I want to be the person that's so consumed with what God's doing that I can't help but tell you about it. But because I'm so consumed with myself and my world and stuff, trying to make myself look presentable to you, whether it be what I say or whatever else, that I'm busy boasting in me, not in the Lord. So may it be that God changes that in us. Do you brag on yourself or others more than you brag on God? Are you busy telling people, look at what God's doing, look at what God's doing? Are you telling your kids when you drive down the road, you know, this is what God's doing in our world, this is what God's doing in my life, these are the things I want to see God do? Do you understand God? 
This is a shameless plug. Prepare you for it. Our church does a thing called Study Serve. And part of that thing is called Life Change. Our Life Change classes teach you to understand God. One of them is called Knowing God. Guess what it's about? Knowing God. And you can sign up. You can just write your name in there, and they'll let you come every week, and they'll tell you things that you should know about God. So you don't even have to do anything. All you've got to do is show up and bring a pen and a piece of paper and a Bible for free. So invest time and money in prayer and understanding God. And lastly, do you know God? Are you here today as one who knows you know you know God? And understand him and experience him and see him on the same track with you day to day leading you along? Or have you come to this place today knowing, I don't even know God? And if you're here today like that, I'm so glad that you're here. This is the the best place that you could be. My hope is that you would see a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners who Jesus got a hold of and did something really special with. Because that's our story. And if you want to be among us, come on down. I mean, not literally, not like right now, but like on The Price is Right. Get involved. Stand up. Run to Jesus. He's calling you. The Bible tells us if today you hear God's voice, if you hear him calling you, don't harden your heart against him, but obey him and come to him. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ and how you might go about doing that, please let me know. You can speak with myself or Daniel or really anybody here. Um, And if they don't know, then they'll point you to somebody who does. Um, I ended up at this church as, uh, I ended up at this church about two weeks after I came to know Christ, and it was kind of weird. I was like, these people sing and talk about Jesus all the time and read Bibles, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but over the long haul, God has been so gracious to allow me um, to learn him and to become very comfortable with the things of God. So if right now uh, you're here, you're uncomfortable with God, um, it may be that you're in that category of that's kind of foolishness or that's kind of a stumbling block I can't get over. But that as you hear God calling you to himself, Flee to him, come to him, reach out to him. So I told you we were going to climb a mountain. I told you we were going to get on top and look around, and then I told you we were going to come down the other side. We're about to come down the other side pretty quickly. Um, the Apostle Paul, in, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul goes on to explain his conduct among the Corinthians. Basically, how, what does it look like to live as one who boasts in the Lord? And that's, that's what he's explaining here. If you've read Paul, you know uh, that he knows more and talks about more than just Christ crucified. But because he understood their temptations to like people who spoke very wisely and were, were um, kind of special people, which we see is the problem here anyway, that he said, look, I'm going to decide to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. And the reason that he did that is because he knows that Christ crucified is the very heart of God's message. Now, there's 
you know, there's, there's many layers, but the very heart of it is Christ crucified. So he wanted to be very clear with them on that message that they would not be confused about what God was calling them to do in trusting Christ. My encouragement to you would be the same. Every day you talk to people. And either you talk to them about Christ or you don't. With your kids, either you talk to them about Christ or you don't. And when you talk about Christ, make sure that you do it in such a way that makes much of Christ and makes much of God, not you. Because as Paul says, the way that we use our words in proclamation, whether it be from here or in this room or in your small group, that that can lead people to trust in the wisdom of men or lead people to trust in you and what you have to say rather than trusting in Christ. Can lead people to idolatry. So if you want to be on very safe ground, have the heart of your conversations and instruction and encouragement be in Christ crucified. It's not easy. It's going to take some work. But we know that this is God's will because we know placing Christ crucified at the center of our message and our heart will lead to not boasting in anything but the Lord. And we know that that delights him. So let's pray that God would take great delight in what we do and the way that we live and the words that we say uh, that he might be glorified. So Father, we do ask that, that your son Jesus would sit upon the throne of our hearts, that no other message would capture our hearts than Christ crucified. God, we ask that what comes out of our lips and overflows out of our hearts would be the very gospel message and that people would trust in you and your ability to save, not in their own ability, not in our abilities, but they would see that there's nothing in man that I should regard him, but only in God is there something worthy of worship. So God calls us this day to identify those things, those places where we boast Strip us of boasting. Remind us that we can boast only in you because of what you've done. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.